Hi. Welcome to a new episode of the Feminifesto podcast. In this episode, Vaishnavi and I speak to Ela Schlosser, the portfolio growth specialist at the Draper Richards Kaplan Foundation, where she provides strategic and operational support to social entrepreneurs to help them scale up. Most recently, Ela was the co-founder and CEO of Resonate, an organization that provides leadership and professional development training to women and youth in East Africa. She's a trained leadership coach and a human-centered design consultant specializing in organizational design, strategy, and business operations. In our conversation, Ela speaks about her work, her journey so far, and some of her most important learnings. Do listen in. Hello Ela, we're so thrilled to have you on the Feminifesto podcast. Thank you so much for making time for us. Yeah, thanks so much. It's good to be here. Thank you. So let's start right from the beginning. What set the ball rolling for your career in the development sector? Um so actually I didn't start working in international development until a few years into my career. But I would say that honestly a large part of what motivated me was uh how I grew up. So I actually grew up in a pretty small rural town in northern California. but my parents really made it a point to get us out of our tiny town and around the world as much as possible so uh we didn't necessarily buy all the cool new toys or have the cool new clothes but once a year my parents took us somewhere outside the US and it really gave me an understanding and sense for sort of the vast amazingness of the whole world and uh my role as a citizen not just of the little town that I grew up in or even the country that I grew up in but sort of a more international perspective of how societies interlink um obviously as a little kid I was more excited about you know eating tacos in Mexico and um experiencing culture in those ways but I think it it really sunk into me the vastness of the world that we live in and and how interesting each part of it is and so um i did a little bit of exploration as a as a teenager for my senior project in high school i went to ecuador for 3 months and and did a photography project and that really helped me connect with the individuality of the personal experiences of people who led lives that were in some ways very different from mine and in some ways very similar And so years later I was working as a community organizer in Washington DC and I saw just how impactful and effective the leadership tools were that we were using in the community organizing space and saw that they were really only being used in a very narrow political context within the US and had a desire to bring those leadership tools internationally and so um my my international development experience really started with a with a big pivot um when i moved to rwanda in 2013 to pilot resonate that's amazing thank you for taking us through your journey with that um let's talk about resonate you you actually also aside from founding it also worked as its ceo so can you tell us a little bit about the work you did and perhaps what inspired its inception yeah yeah so resonate is an organization that unlocks the leadership potential of women and girls in East Africa. And really what we mean by that is we teach women to have the self-confidence and the leadership skills to take the opportunities that they've been given and actually turn that into action and change in their own lives and communities. 
And um, as I mentioned, I, I based our work off of what I learned in community organizing. And in particular, we use storytelling as a mechanism to reframe how women think about themselves, how they talk about themselves, how others see them, and ultimately what's possible for them in the world. So we did um, storytelling for leadership workshops that took two to three days generally. Uh, so a really pretty short period of time. But in that time, we really taught the women and girls that we work with how to reframe how they think about themselves um, such that they were empowered to actually take the skills that they had and turn them into action in their communities. And we always worked through partnerships. So we partnered with groups that were providing some sort of hard skill, education, vocational training, and then integrated this competence and leadership workshop into what they did. It's such a beautiful way to focus on their existing skills and help them enhance that through various other training, including vocational training. I really like that aspect. But I'm curious, um, Resonate primarily focuses on women in West Africa. And as someone from California, working with the youth in a country in a, that's very distinct from your own, what went on uh, into cultivating the cultural competence and perspective that was necessary for you to engage with this community? In a mindful yeah. way. Yeah, so we're in Rwanda. So we're actually um, based in Rwanda and working throughout East Africa. Um, haven't expanded to West Africa yet. <laughs> um, and I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a really good point and is actually part of why I'm no longer with Resonate, but that's a different part of the story. Um, when I moved there, I pretty quickly met the woman who became my co-founder, who's a Rwandan woman. And... Um, she was really instrumental for me in understanding how we took a framework and a concept and a curriculum that was developed in the U.S. and through U.S. social movements and really adapted it to meet the cultural contextual needs of, of East Africa and Rwanda specifically. And, you know, I really think that my comparative advantage, uh, at that point, I was 26 and had just moved to a country that I'd never been to before and was starting a business, which is something I'd definitely never done before. And, uh, you know, just knowing what I didn't know, which at that point was mostly everything, you know, really understanding when to ask for help and um, treating myself as a learner primarily for a good long while. Um, and it was not that long, maybe six months, less than a year, certainly, when I transitioned from doing the trainings myself to having our Rwandan trainers who are the ones who actually execute the trainings. Um, and, and it really, you know, I saw myself as a conduit for, um, for structure, for content, for ideas, but um, the team were the ones who really drove the program and drove the work. And um, we just really saw incredible results. You know, I think that, as I sort of mentioned earlier, there's lots of things that are different um, about California and Rwanda. And, and there's, um, there's a lot that's similar, especially when it comes to sort of feelings of self-confidence and storytelling as one of the oldest human art, or art forms. Um, storytelling is a really powerful way to understand the world, to understand ourselves. And so if we made space for that to happen in a way that felt natural to the participants that we were working with, it had the potential to be really effective. But in order to do that, it really required openness to 
designing our program around the needs of the people that we are working with rather than the ideas of the people who are developing the content. Thank you for sharing that. And also thank you for being vulnerable in uh, speaking about the times that you felt challenged when you were shifting country and then dealing with a whole different thing of starting a business and all of the things that come with that. Um, but one of the things that sort of endures in the work that you do is human-centered design. Whether, And I'd like to think even storytelling does have something to do with that. But could you take us through what that kind of work entails and what human-centered design is all about? Yeah, human-centered design is um, exactly what it sounds like in that you're designing around the person. Uh, and, and what that really means is instead of people in a boardroom thinking up what they think someone else might want, it's really talking to the people who are going to use your product or your service, helping understand, um, asking them to help you understand what it is that they need, what are their pain points, what's difficult for them, and then designing a program around how to solve that, right? So, and testing it frequently. So really integrating the people who you're trying to serve as part of the development process of your content. And at Resonate, we had what we called a participant advisory council, and they were people who had gone through our programs. And we met with them, a group of people, we met with them once a month, and if we had any new things that we were testing or questions or ideas as a way to um, get feedback from them. We'd always run it by them first. We would sometimes have them generate ideas around ways that we could improve our programs. And they would be, you know, then defining for us how we could do better versus the other way around. Thank you so much for taking us through that because it sounds like human-centered design is a really bottom-up uh, approach to design and to uh, building these kind of projects. And I really like that there's a participatory approach that focuses on the need of the community that's involved. So um, yeah. can you tell us? Yeah. yeah. So can you um, take us through some of your key observations around social entrepreneurship in the development field today? Yeah, so I think one of the things that I learned that was important for me personally and has sort of redirected how I'm, I'm pivoting my career now, but also I think is really tied to this idea of human-centered design, is that I have seen over and over again that the most uh, complex and difficult challenges are best solved by those who are directly impacted by them. So when I think about trying to... Um, design a program for adolescent girls in Rwanda, um, that's, it, it, it leads to follow that we need to ask adolescent girls in Rwanda what they need, that we need to give them an opportunity to have their voice heard in shaping that. But I also think on a larger structural level, that makes sense. And so ultimately, um, that shaped my choice to leave my position as CEO of Resonate and transition leadership of the team over to an incredible East African director. And we actually had a goal uh, to have a fully East African team, which we achieved in 2019. And that felt really important to me because now all of the people who are on our staff are people who uh, are directly living the context that our participants are. And of course, circumstances vary across individuals, but our new director, Narette Chodimuchi, who um, is a Burundian woman and living in Rwanda, 
she just has an understanding of the cultural context, no, regardless of the fact that I lived there for six years, having grown up there um, in, in Burundi and having lived in Rwanda, she just has a much better understanding than I ever could. And also it provides uh, an example for the people that we work with that is much more empowering because they see someone who looks like them, who came from the places that they did, who's in a position of, of leadership and um, who's really reaching out to lift them up as well. And I know that that was true for my organization. And I'm certainly not saying that there isn't a place for people to be involved in international work, but specifically in East Africa, one of the problems that I noticed was how often there were Western leaders uh, who were then leading a group of, of East African staff. And the village capital actually put out a really interesting report that said that 90% of East African companies that receive investment have at least one Western founder. And that really struck me uh, because what we're trying to do in that context is, uh, you know, oftentimes investment for a company or, or foundation money comes from the West. And that is being then funneled through someone who's in a Western image rather than trusting the people who live in their own communities to understand and solve their own problems. And that's really what Resonate is about. It's really what community organizing is about. It's really what human-centered design is about, is about believing that people are creative, resourceful, and whole and have what they need in order to solve the problems that surround them. And um, of course, that can't, that's not easy and it can't often be done quickly or it certainly can't be done alone. But uh, being the air beneath someone's wings rather than trying to get them to get in your plane. Thank you so much for sharing that, Ayla. It's especially empowering to hear this because it, uh, to me, it sounds like um, a lot of effort has gone into dismantling the privilege and uh, the standpoints we each occupy. And hearing that from you, it's, it's, always, it's always very affirmative and always very powerful to hear these stories. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. So Yeah, I, I think one of the things and um, one of the things that I think is super important, and it's obviously very culturally relevant right now as a white woman in the U.S., is that, um, you know, being, being of an underprivileged group in one capacity doesn't get you off the hook for recognizing the privileges that you have in the rest of your life. In fact, just the opposite. Um, knowing what it's like to be a woman and face discrimination in that capacity only heightens my responsibility for responding to oppression in other ways. And I, I think that the, the international development community is coming around to that slowly. They're starting to involve more community members and projects. They're starting to ask more. But honestly, the, the framework for what international development is and how it started is coming out of a colonial structure and a sort of um, condescending or patronizing approach of how do we help you uh, become more like us, which really doesn't make any sense. And so I think it's important, especially in this moment where I'm actually currently living in the U.S., where there's finally a really big spotlight on discrimination against Black people that's been going on for as long as this country has existed. Um, but to recognize that it doesn't get any easier or any less complex when we think about the dynamics between, you know, Western folks who are trying to do work in developing economies 
um, those dynamics are just as complicated in that there's privilege embedded and, and we have to look at how we're showing up and be critical. And I, I think it's the biggest, the biggest opportunity for international development to happen in a way that is sustainable and peaceful is to really turn those power dynamics on their heads. And that's one of the reasons that I think human-centered design is so important is because if we're actually designing in the image of the people that we want to serve, it roots out some of that bias and some of that, um, you know, neo-colonial structure right off the bat. That was absolutely beautiful. And I really love the, the way you framed it. We have to look at how we show up and be critical all the time. Thank you so much for sharing that once again, Ayla. Um, but I'm going to shift gears a little bit to something that you're working on right now, which is to help social entrepreneurs scale. Uh, what are some of the common challenges that you see social entrepreneurs encountering, particularly when it comes to scaling up? You know, as unsexy as it sounds, <laughs> I think organizational design plays a really big role in how organizations scale and whether or not they do it gracefully. So assuming that you have a product that people really want, which again really comes to, are you solving the needs of the people for whom you're creating your, your product or your service? Um, if you do, it's gonna take off because people are gonna want what you're offering and that's gonna happen quickly. And oftentimes with new organizations, they have everyone focusing in the business and it's, not until they already have growing pains or things are happening too quickly to keep up that they actually start thinking about hiring people to work on the business. And what I mean by that is little things like, you know, it really matters how you recruit and onboard people, but most small companies don't hire an HR person until they're, you know, already can't keep up with the, the recruitment and demand of hiring um, and, and how someone starts and, and gets brought into an organization really impacts culture long-term. Um, culture is another piece that it sort of happens organically and inherently at the beginning when you're a startup and everyone has contact with the, the leaders of the organization who are often the carriers of the culture. But as that organization grows, oftentimes people aren't thinking about in advance how to preserve that culture as you grow. Um, all the way up to things that are more simple like how does information get transferred? How do programs replicate? But I think one of the best things an organization can do once they have a really good handle on we are offering something <clears throat> that people want, we know how it's distributed and we know how it's funded, is then immediately to start thinking about how do we anticipate the growth that's going to happen within the organization so that we don't end up having logistics and systems and processes get in the way of giving people what they want. Thank you so much for highlighting those points, Ayla. That was really informative and insightful. So finally, we want to ask you, what are you working on currently and what kind of projects do you have coming up? Um, so I'm actually starting work with the Draper Richards Kaplan Foundation at the end of August, and I'll be working with them as a portfolio growth specialist. So I'll get to work with different entrepreneurs in their portfolio who do have early stage scaling social venture ventures and give them strategic and operational support across a, a variety of um, industries, geographies, and different types of projects. And in the meantime, um, actually just for the next few weeks, one of the things that I'm gonna be doing is working with the New York City Health Department 
uh, on their contract tracing program. And interestingly, it ties in pretty closely with what I've just said. And now obviously something like contact tracing in a COVID era, there's no way you could have anticipated the operational needs. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an urgency and a response that didn't have the luxury of thinking through what might be needed as they grew. Um, but I'm going to come in just for a few weeks and work with them on documenting their processes so that when they do continue to grow and continue to operate, um, and when personnel change, there's enough um, legacy information within the system that the system can keep running, even if the people within the system change. And so I think that that will be a really interesting and important thing to approach um, in, a, in, a, in a project where, you know, there's, there's an impossibility of having planned previously, but that doesn't mean that we can't put processes and plans in place now that will help it run more smoothly, um, hopefully until we can get this pandemic a little more under control. Thank you so much, Ada. That actually brings us to the end of the podcast, and it was an absolute pleasure listening to you speak. And we're very, very grateful that you gave us this time to also reflect on some of the things that are going on in the world around us, um, be that with racism or with just the way the development sector is built on the foundations of colonialism. And right now, with so many things that are challenging us about the pandemic. So thank you so much for making time and for being with us through this conversation and more power to you in all the days to come. Yeah, thank you so much. And the only other thing that I would say is the other, the only other piece of work that I'm working on that I would want to mention is that um, I'm doing leadership coaching. And I particularly love to do leadership coaching with uh, young feminist leaders, be they male or female feminist leaders. But um, if there's folks out there who are looking at a next stage in their career or some sort of career transition, or they just want to uh, work on their own leadership, I think it can be a really valuable thing and I'd love for folks to reach out. That sounds absolutely amazing. Hoping our listeners take you up on that and reach out to you. You can look it up as Ayla Shusa and you'll find uh, the rest of her bio on the description in the section below. Thank you so much once again, Ayla. It was an absolute pleasure listening to you today. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so take much, care. Ayla.